All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. If you've been with us the past, really the past couple of months, we, as of last week, we just finished walking through a series on the Great Commission. And if you've been here, I think you would agree with this, but this is an awesome time for our church. So coming out of that, I believe that we're about to enter into another great season that the Lord has for us. So starting today and over the next few months, really the next several months on Sunday morning, we're going to be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we'll start that today, and that's just a heads up of what's coming at you. I want to invite all of you to be praying that God would use, would use this series in our church as we walk through this gospel to increase our love for the Lord Jesus, to conform us more into the image of Christ. So please be praying that for us. And uh, let's take some time and pray together now uh, before we dive into this today. Lord, we gather in your name this morning, Jesus. And I just want to stop, Lord, and remember you. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would drive away any coldness in our hearts toward you, Christ. Remind us of your kingship and all your authority, Lord Jesus. Remind us that even now, Jesus, that you are surrounded by heavenly beings who constantly fall down and worship you with voices so loud that the temple in heaven shakes like an earthquake. Worthy are you, Jesus. Lord, help us to help our hearts to burn with passion for your name. God, I pray that you would remind us of the glories that you left, Lord Jesus. And the place that you stooped to, Lord, from the place that you left, just to save us, God. And I pray, Lord, that that would grip us. God, I pray that you would drive any coldness toward the gospel, towards you, Right out of our hearts, Lord, that you would drive it away. I just ask you that, Lord. God, I pray that you would use today for your glory and for your namesake. God, I pray that you would use your word to bring Jesus to our remembrance, that you would exalt yourself among us, Lord. God, I ask for your help. I ask you to help this church, Lord. We want to lean against you and not... On ourselves, God, we want to trust in Your Spirit and not in our flesh. And we pray, we ask and we pray, Lord, that You would teach us Your Word. Jesus, be exalted in this meeting. Jesus, be exalted among us. And we pray this in Your name. Amen. Alright, I want to say a few things before we get started. Uh, we're about to start walking through a book of the Bible together. Like I mentioned, this one is going to be the Gospel of Mark. This will actually be the third time that we've done this as a church. The first one, if you remember, if you've been around uh, for quite a while, was the, uh, the letter of Philippians. And we did that almost a year ago. Uh, and then we went through the Old Testament book of Ezra together. And then now we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark. So I want you to think about this question uh, before we get started today. Why is it a good idea? Why would it ever be a good thing to preach through a book of the Bible systematically? Okay? And when I say systematically, I mean preach through, pick up where you left off, preach through it again, pick up where you left off, and you're working through a book like that. Why is that a good idea? Think about that question. And I want to share with you two convictions that are driving us to go this direction. The first conviction is 2, Corinthians, I mean 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, This is real simple. All Scripture. Not just some scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God, not just a pastor's personal favorite Bible passages is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So that's the first conviction. And it seems to be a really good thing for the church and for every believer to feed in this pasture labeled all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So think about this. Systematically walking through books of the Bible helps to give the church a healthy diet. Okay, You get all the Word of God, not just some of the Word of God. Think about it like this also. It also helps teachers in the church. Why would it help teachers in the church? Let me throw a few ideas at you. Okay, In our flesh... Pastor, teachers, anyone who, anyone who teaches the Word of God in our flesh, we would love to skip difficult, hard passages in the Bible and never touch them with a 10-foot pole. We would love to do that. Okay? But systematically teaching through books of the Bible forces you to deal with texts that you might otherwise shy away from. So this is a safeguard for us. If all Scripture is God-breathed, then even the difficult portions of Scripture, the hard portions of Scripture are God-breathed. Also, think about in our flesh, we would also love to give you our favorite topics all the time because this is what stirs us up. This is what we're most familiar with. But the systematic approach keeps us balanced and it keeps us in check. So it's good for the church and it's good for teachers. Okay? Second conviction. That was the first one. All Scripture is the Word of God, breathed out by God. Second conviction is this. It, regards, it, it arises with this idea of expositional preaching. Okay? If you've never heard that, just kind of throw that in your mind for a second. Expositional preaching. What is that? Here's what it is. It's simply preaching that exposes, expositional, it exposes the Word of God. Systematically walking through books of the Bible is arguably the best way to expose the Word of God to the church. Now I want to say this. Here's what I don't mean. Okay? I think that a teacher can expose the Word of God through Bible topics. Okay? Another way to say that, I believe that the Scriptures can be taught expositionally and topically. That can happen. For example, we just finished up a series on the Great Commission. Okay? That would be an, by God's grace, that would be an example that before that we finished up a series on the work of Christ. So I believe that this can happen. But I also believe that this is supplemental. Okay? And that the main portion of our diet needs to be working through entire books of the Word of God. The systematically walking through books of the Bible. The Word of, the Word of God calls this line upon line and precept upon precept. Okay? As we work through the Word of God. Here's an example. There's a huge temptation if you're teaching the Scriptures. For the first question that, walk, that goes in your mind is, Well, what do I want to talk about? What do I want to say? Okay? And then let's say that you, you think through that and you say, well, I want to talk about debt. Okay? And then now you're off to the races studying about what the Bible says about debt. Okay? And if you're not very careful, the main point in your teaching to a group of other believers could come from yourself instead of a careful study of the Word of God, instead of carefully exposing the Word of God. This is a huge temptation. It's very dangerous. Uh, think about this. However, contrast to that, if we're systematically walking through books of the Bible, the first question you ask is not what I want to talk about. What's the first question you ask if you're systematically walking through the books of the Bible? It's not what do I want to talk about. It's what's the main point of this text? What does this text mean? Okay? And then from that place, you seek to expose what the Word of God simply says to the church. 
this is the way that Ryan and I are seeking to obey the commandment in 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the Word. We are charged by God to preach the Word, not our own thoughts, not our own spins, but the Word of God. Okay, systematically walking through books of the Bible helps us to preach that Word in its context, not just what we say, say it means, but what God says it means. This is just introductory. I, if you've never thought about this, this is helpful for you. Okay? So, 2 Timothy 4.2, as we study through Mark together, please be diligent to devour this book for yourself. Okay? And here's what I mean. How do you know if we're doing our job well? Okay? How do you know if we're exposing the Word of God to you or if we're exposing just our own thoughts with some Bible verses sprinkled in? So, be diligent to study this book for yourself and pray that God would help us to faithfully preach His Word. Listen to this definition of expositional preaching from a guy named Mark Dever. Okay? It says, Expositional preaching is making the point of the sermon the point of the passage. Okay? If that has been done, if the point of, of a sermon is the point of the passage and the Word of God has been exposed to you, if not, we're in trouble. Okay? If the main point of a teaching is not the main point of a text of Scripture, we're in trouble. Okay, we've hijacked that passage from its context, and we made it mean something that the Holy Spirit did not intend for it to mean. So, think towards this. Ask God to help us. Uh, as Ryan and I stand up here week after week, are we calling you to action based on thoughts in our own minds, or are we exposing you to the Word of God and then calling you to respond to the living Word of God? Historically, this is the type of preaching that the Holy Spirit has used to save the lost, to revive the downcast, to stir up the idol, to encourage the saints, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And this is what we're going after here. Okay? Spirit of God empowers the Word of God. Okay? Not just ideas, but the living, breathing Word. This Holy Spirit wrote a book. It's called the Bible. This is what He anoints. This is what He empowers. This is what we're going after. Expositional preaching. So, this is why it's a good idea to walk through books of the Bible together. Second question. So now that we've dealt with that, well, why the Gospel of Mark? Okay, you got a bunch of books in the Bible. Why this one? All right, first answer to that question is that, that really simply, I believe that the Lord has led us to this book. Okay, uh, there it is. Pray and ask your Father uh, to show you His will, and He leads you in a certain direction. I believe that's happened. Second answer to that question is I want to read an extended quote from a guy named J.C. Ryle. And the, and the answer, the question that, I, that this quote is going to answer is, why the Gospel of Mark? Alright, listen up. This is uh, several sentences long. J.C. Ryle says this, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. And it is not wise to exalt part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. Now the Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost has told us the story of His life and death, His sayings and doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, His manners, His feelings, His wisdom, His grace, His patience, His love, and His power are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. 
Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it should be so. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish men to study the Gospels. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a work, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of His life, which ought not to be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. So I say amen to J.C. Ryle. Okay? And I'm excited about studying the Gospel of Mark with this church. I want to know Christ more with all of you, and I want to love Him more and more with each one of you. And I'm praying that God would bless this time together. And I invite you to enter into this place of faith, asking God to use this series to bring about edification to this church. So pray for us. Study this book. Come expectant. Okay? This is a little introductory thoughts to this, uh, to this book. Before we dive into verses 1 through 8, which, you, which we will cover today, I want to give you some background to the book of Mark. And I think this will help set the trajectory as we work through this book in, in the coming weeks. So this is some background information, historical information. Uh, I don't intend for this to take up a bunch of time, but I do think it will be helpful for you. Okay? Here we go. As eyewitnesses began to die out that saw Jesus Christ live and die and rise again. Okay, there was a generation of several hundred people that saw Him, even after His resurrection. As that generation began to die out, there became a great need in the church of Jesus for a written record of the real life of Christ. We understand that? Okay. So, about 30 years after Jesus dies, we have this first gospel written in the form of the Gospel of Mark. This is the earliest one. It's the shortest one and it's the earliest one. About 30 years after Jesus. Have you ever wondered this? Why do we have four gospels? Okay. Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why are there four of them? If we were honest, I think that some of us would be tempted to think, well, why didn't we just throw all those four together, you know, summarize all that information, make one long narrative, simplify this thing? Surely that would be better, right? If we simplified the four and just made one, one story of Jesus, okay? But I would remind you that the Holy Spirit, in His perfect work, He gave us four Gospels, okay? Why? Okay, think about this. Each of the Gospels were, was written for a different reason, in a different context, to a different audience, and to serve different needs in the church. Okay? They're unique. However, all four of them are in perfect harmony with one another. And the story of Jesus is one story. And we have it from four different views. Listen to this from John Stott. Jesus is too great to be captured by one author or fully depicted from one perspective. The Jesus of the Gospels is a portrait with four faces. So think about this. How thankful should we... If you have just somebody that you really, really admire and that you really like, I don't know, Charles Spurgeon or, or whoever it is for you, okay, and you read one story about him, and it's just awesome. Okay? Think if you had four biographies of the same guy, you know, and you'd just be tearing them up one after the other. Okay? How thankful should we be for four stories, four accounts of the life of Jesus, four Gospels? How thankful should we be for this? A fourfold story of the Savior. And I want you to think about this. These Gospels, these written records, as the eyewitnesses died out, 
Okay, these words, these books, anchor Jesus Christ in real human history. Jesus is no fairy tale. Okay, these books anchor him in a real culture, a real story, real history. Think about this. All four Gospels remain nameless. The author of them never mentions his name in the four Gospels. Presumably, this is out of a heart to give all glory and all praise to Jesus in the story of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they never mention their name in these books. But the authorship of these books was settled very, very early in church history. Okay? Now, you might have already guessed this. This is a freebie. The author of the Gospel according to Mark is Mark. Okay? This was established very early in church history. This is the John Mark mentioned in Acts 13, the one that accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the, for the first portion of the first missionary journey. Okay, so he was intimately familiar with the Apostle Paul. But our, but our time today is going to really take a different turn. Okay? He was also intimately familiar with the Apostle Peter. And this is what we're going to zone in on today. And here's why we need to know this. Ever since the first century church, uh, the church has affirmed that John Mark wrote this gospel based off the preachings of Peter. Okay? In Acts 12, the first place that Peter goes after he's released from prison in Acts 12 is John Mark's mother's house. So we know that John Mark and Peter were acquainted. We know that they, they knew each other. And in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls Mark his son. So somewhere along the way, the Apostle Peter became a spiritual father to John Mark. Peter was obviously, uh, arguably the closest man on earth to Jesus during his earthly life. Okay? And we know that Peter wrote books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about this? He's so close to Jesus, why did Peter not ever write his own gospel? The gospel according to Peter. Why, would, why don't we have that book? Surely he was qualified. Surely he knew the story, right? Surely God had inspired him already to write Scripture, First and Second Peter. And the answer to that question is we actually kind of do have Peter's gospel because John Mark wrote his gospel through the lenses of the Apostle Peter. And John Mark's gospel carries the authority, the apostolic authority of Peter. Okay? This is why this is important, because in, in, as the eyewitnesses of Jesus began to die out, there are all these weird books about Christ that started to fly out of nowhere. And the church started chunking false gospels out and, and, and labeling them heretics left and right. Okay? But this one stood the test. Why? Why did this one stand the test in the first century church? Why didn't they not chunk this one out? A lot of false gospels got chunked out. And the answer is that from very early, even 30 years after this was written, that the story that the Apostle Peter himself stands behind this book was anchored in uh, early first century church. So think about this. There has never been a serious argument in all of church history that's challenged the authorship or the inspiration of Mark's gospel. So this is an established book. It's in what we call the canon of the New Testament, the authoritative documents of Christianity. This is the Word of God. All right, this book is very distinct from the other gospels. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels like this, but how is Mark different from Matthew? How is Mark different from Luke? How is Mark different from John? Mark is very distinct in this way. It is action-packed. It's the shortest Gospel. It is action-packed and fast-paced. 
It has very little introduction in this book and very little conclusion. It's just boom, you hit the, hit the ground running and he leaves you almost hanging at the very end. It's a fast-paced narrative. Present tense verbs are everywhere in this story. Okay, if you have the New American Standard Bible, you can see that easier than anywhere else. Okay, just Mark tells the story not in the past tense, but in the present tense. This vivid, living illustration of the work and teachings of Christ. Also, the word immediately shows up 41 times in this gospel. Okay? And immediately Jesus did this. And immediately Jesus did this. And oh, and immediately he did this. And immediately he did this. My wife even called it the immediately gospel this week. And I think even a quick overview reading of the gospel of Mark, that should stick out to you. This thing moves incredibly fast. It's almost like ADD, that he's jacked up on caffeine, and he just he doesn't even take a breath in between stories. It's just one after the other coming at you like a fast-paced narrative. Okay? Mark's gospel was written to a Gentile Christian audience. Well, how do we know this? Well, here's how. We know this because Mark explains Jewish customs that he assumes his audience would not understand. There are also fewer Old Testament references in the gospel of Mark than the other gospels. And Mark also skips Jewish content such as genealogies that would be necessary for other audiences. So he wrote this to a Gentile group, a Gentile Christians. The recipients of this gospel were most likely living in the city of Rome around 65 AD. Now that is very important. I'm going to say that one more time. The recipients of this gospel were Gentile Christians most likely living in the city of Rome around 65 AD. Very important for this reason. This would have meant that the, the, the group who received this gospel okay, were the Christians who were experiencing possibly the greatest persecution that, that the church of Jesus has ever endured. Okay? This would have been the persecution under the Emperor Nero that breaks out in the city of Rome after the great fire of A.D. 64. And I'm refer- so I'm referring to the persecution under Nero. Now think back to 1 Peter 5.13. 1 Peter 5.13 places Mark with Peter in the city of Rome around this time period. Okay, So 1 Peter 5.13 gives strong evidence that the historical authorship, the historical dating, and the historical audience are in fact true. Everything that we've covered. That's strong evidence that we lean in that direction. So think about this, this heavily persecuted church. This, there's stories of what Nero has done. That he, he, he turned Christians into living human torches. And he would call them in to his aristocrat parties at his house, you know, pour flammables on them. He would light them like a torch on fire. This was the time when Christians were called uh, for the first time into the Roman Colosseum. And they were ripped to shreds by, by a beast in the middle of thousands of people. Okay? Fathers watched their children die. Husbands watched their wives rip to shreds. This was a heavily persecuted church under Nero. So can you imagine being a follower of Jesus okay, during this time period? The church was driven underground for the first time. Literally underground. They had to meet in these underground rooms called catacombs. Okay, and they would gather together in secret. Imagine that you were one of them. Okay, and you were in this underground room during heavy, heavy persecution. And then you catch wind that this, that this new book is, 
has, has, that bears the authority of the Apostle Peter himself. There's a written record of the life of Christ. And let's say that you get this fresh copy of it and you're in this catacomb, this underground meeting with these other Christians, other people who follow and love Jesus, who've counted the cost, and then you get these inspired words from the Holy Spirit that hit your ears for the first time. Imagine this. So with this context, let's read Mark 1, verse 1 through 8 together. Imagine this in this setting. These words hitting your ears for the first time. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So imagine the story of Jesus just breaks into that environment, this inspired story. In the opening verses of Mark's Gospel, we are introduced to the main figure, the central figure in this story, Jesus Christ. In the first verse, we will use verse 1 to get an overview of Mark's Gospel. I think this will be very helpful for you as we work through this book over the next several months. The opening verse really serves as a theme or a title to the whole book. You have three uh, words to describe Christ there. He's Jesus, Christ, and then He's the Son of God. Jesus is His human name. Christ describes His royal kingship. And the Son of God is a reference to His deity. Okay? So this is a pregnant section in, in, in verse 1. The Gospel begins with Jesus as a declaration of the Son of God. And it ends with the declaration from the Roman centurion as he looks into the face of Christ. Jesus takes his last breath and this Roman centurion has seen many, many people die. He's no, he's no rookie to, to crucifixion. He looks in the face of Jesus. And Jesus takes his last breath and, and he says in Mark 15.39, this Roman centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. God. These are the bookends to the Gospel of Mark. It ends with the declaration of Jesus as the Son of God, and it, and it uh, begins with the declaration of Him as the Son of God, and it ends with the declaration of Him as the Son of God. So Mark announces that the Son of God has come as Christ the King. Okay? Jesus has come to rule and to reign. But here's the thing. Mark also clearly portrays Jesus... Not only as the Son of God, but also as the servant of God. This is a huge theme for you understanding the book of Mark. So if I were to walk in you with <clears throat> if I were to walk into a conversation with you at some point, okay, and I think this is a really good thing for Christians to be equipped to do, and I were to say, you know, what's the Gospel of John about? What's the book of Ephesians about? I think that it would be really helpful if you were able to give me a really informed answer that this is God's inspired word, and, and this is what this book's about. This is the main thing, the main point. Okay, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the servant of God is a huge theme 
the central theme in the book of Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This might be, this might be the, the key verse in all the gospel of Mark. Let's read this together. This is huge for you to understand this. Mark 10.45 says this. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Okay? So Mark announces Him, even in the first verse, as the Son of God, the King. But Jesus comes right behind Him and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So we're, here we have this. Uh, Mark's Gospel is that God Himself enters into the human story in the person of Jesus. Yet upon His arrival, okay, something happens that no one expected. And we encountered this shocking truth that this glorious King would be crucified. That He would die. That He would give His life as a ransom for many. Thus the Gospel of Mark can be summarized in this simple phrase. Okay? Here's the summary of the Gospel of Mark. The Son of God became the servant of God to bring about the salvation of sinners. The Son of God became the servant of God to bring about the salvation of sinners. Jesus did what no one else had ever done with the Old Testament. He fused together two images that everyone else separated. There was a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then there was a, the Christ, the Son of Man, the ruler that would reign in Psalm 2 and Daniel 7. And everybody thought these were separate figures, but Jesus brings both of them into the same person. Okay? He is the Son of God. He is the King. But He's the King that gives His life as a ransom for many. In verse 1, Mark announces the beginning of the Gospel. Do you see that? The beginning of the Gospel. And that word beginning should trigger some thoughts in your mind. Because there are other beginnings in Scripture. Think about this. John 1, verse 1 says, "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Okay? And that Word is Jesus. So think about this. Think as far back in your mind as you could possibly think. And that verse teaches that, that the Son of God existed before that. Okay? In, that. in that beginning. That pre-existent beginning. And then, there's another beginning. Genesis 1.1 teaches us that God creates all things in seven days. Okay? And that time itself was created and the clock of human history began to tick. Genesis 1. But here we have another beginning in Mark 1.1. 1, 1, okay? The beginning of the Gospel. Okay? So here we have God Himself comes out of eternity and into time in the person of Jesus. And He begins to initiate this eternal plan of redemption as Jesus begins His ministry. Okay? This is a powerful moment. This is good news. It's a holy moment in history. The dawn of a new age. Because Christ, not only has He came, but He's, a, he's about to start this walk towards the cross and his, his triumphant resurrection. The hour has finally struck. God is initiating this plan. The Savior has come. And with one announcement, Mark heralds His coming as He begins the footsteps to the cross and His triumphant resurrection. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. Mark 1.1 Jesus dominates Mark's Gospel. A huge theme in this book is tracing the disciples' understanding of who Jesus was. So Mark tells us in the first verse who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. But if you were to read this book, Jesus' disciples, it actually took them a, a lot longer to get that 
than the first ver- verse of Mark's gospel. Here's what I mean. Okay? You can trace this theme out. This is a huge, huge theme in this book. In Mark chapter 1, right after Jesus cast a demon out in a synagogue, verse 20, in Capernaum, verse 27 says this. This is a group of people saying this. What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And they didn't quite know what to do with this man. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. And then in verse 41, a group of people says this, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? They didn't know what to do with Him. Okay, and then we make our way to a huge pivot point in this Gospel in chapter 8. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to His disciples and He asks them a question. He says, who do you say that I am? And then Jesus turns to Peter. I mean, uh, Peter turns to Jesus and He gives His famous answer. This is in verse 29. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. They didn't know quite what to do with Him, but here we have it. You are the Christ. Now that is a pregnant statement. Peter basically says, you're the promised anointed one to Israel. You're the long prophesied one. You're the long awaited one. Jesus, you're the Psalm 2 ruler and the Daniel 7 Messiah. You're the Isaiah 53 servant. And this is the central question that everyone must answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Okay, Eternity hangs in the balance of the answer to this question. Who do you say that He is? Alright, that's our overview of the book using 1-1 as a guide to the Gospel of Mark. Okay, in verse 1, Mark immediately tells us who Christ is. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Gospel. And then in verses 2 and 3, okay, He takes this Gospel and He roots it in Old Testament Scripture. Just a quick thought here. Even Mark, an inspired writer, defined the Gospel by what had been written. And so should we. The gospel is not whatever we like it to be. It's what has been written. And so this is what he does here. So verse 1, he he announces this gospel. And then here we go. Verses 2 and 3 say this. As it is written in the prophet, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make His path straight. In these verses, Mark quotes... Two Old Testament passages. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And we're going to take a look at both of those real quick. So in your Bible, turn to Malachi 3, verse 1. And we're going to look at that for a second. Malachi 3.1 says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Alright, Malachi in this verse announces that this messenger is coming to prepare a way. We good? But something very important happens in this verse, and I want you to see it. And Mark wants us to see it because he references this text. Who does the messenger prepare the way for in Malachi 3.1? The answer is none other than God Himself. And in the last half of that phrase, we have this. 
the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And this verse very clearly teaches us that God Himself is coming. God Himself is coming and a messenger will announce Him. Alright, now flip to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Let's look at that together. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says this, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Alright, instead of a messenger, Isaiah calls the one who, who will prepare the way a voice. Malachi calls him a messenger. Isaiah calls him a voice. But this verse teaches the exact same thing as we saw in Malachi 3. Think about this question. Whose way is to be prepared in Isaiah 40 verse 3? The way of the Lord. And who, and who is this highway for in Isaiah 40, 40 verse 3? It's for our God. Okay, both of these verses in the Old Testament use the covenant name for God. This name is Yahweh, the personal name of God Himself. And both of these verses, these are two prophetic voices that announce that there's coming a day when Yahweh Himself would come to the earth. Yahweh is coming. God Himself is going to come down. He's going to suddenly come. And His, and His coming would be preceded by a messenger or a voice. So our next question is this, who is this messenger? Verse 4 says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Mark tells us that this messenger, this voice, is John. We know him as John the Baptist. He would be the one that would announce Yahweh's coming. And we know he is the forerunner of Jesus, which means that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the fulfillment to this prophecy. His charge was to prepare the way, literally to make a highway. And I don't know how many of you have ever seen a road being built. Okay, Maybe you're not real familiar with construction, but I want you to think about what happens when a road is built, when a highway is built. What happens then? Listen to Isaiah 40 verse 4. This is what happens. Vivid description. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made smooth. Okay, these are massive dirt work projects that smooth things out for this road, for this highway. This was John's job. He was to prepare a highway for Yahweh. A highway for the Lord Himself so that the King, God Himself, could come in splendor and honor and glory. This was John's task from the Lord. He was the messenger. He was the voice. How does John prepare this way for the Lord? Think about this. Verse 4 tells us that John begins to prepare this way for the Lord by proclaiming repentance. So God told him to prepare the way, and what did John do? He opened his mouth and he proclaimed repentance. His job, according to Malachi 4.6, was to turn the hearts of the people of Israel. That's the charge that he had from God, that Elijah was coming, to turn the hearts of the people of Israel. He's the Elijah that was to come. Alright, if God gives you a task to turn the hearts of a nation, what do you do? If you're John, you open your mouth and you begin to preach a message of repentance. And this is what he did. This was his strategy. John announced the coming judgment, but he also preached the good news, even good news of the forgiveness of sins. And he was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. 
He's the voice and the messenger. Where does John prepare this way? In verse 4. It tells us that it was in the wilderness. John prepared the way in the wilderness. This is somewhat surprising, right? The wilderness is a lifeless desert place. And traditionally, it was the Old Testament meeting place between God and His prophets. This lifeless desert place that God would take a man out in the middle of nowhere and He would take him to the end of himself and then He would reveal Himself to him. And He would speak to him and He would put His words in His mouth. This is the place where God prepared, uh, John prepared this way. It is, it's symbolically, the wilderness symbolically represents the spiritual poverty of the people of Israel. Lifeless. Okay, it's a lifeless desert place. And John calls this nation out into this lifeless desert place to confess their spiritual poverty and to repent and make themselves ready for the coming of Yahweh Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says this, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, here we have this wilderness prophet in the middle of nowhere, and he's preaching repentance and forgiveness. And many come out and respond. And this may surprise you. That verse that we just said, read said, all the country, all Jerusalem. Here's the point. Many, many, many people responded to John's preaching. Many, many, many people responded to his preaching. The Holy Spirit anointed him to preach and to teach the Word of God. And multitudes flocked to Him in the middle of nowhere to hear the Word of God from His lips. As they arrived, they confessed their sins and they were baptized in the River Jordan. And I want you to understand this. To fully understand what happens in this whole scene, you need to understand some historical things that are happening around this time. Okay, Something began to happen in Judaism at some point along the way, called proselyte baptism. Alright, hang that word in your brain for a second. So John, but here, here's why this is important. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a commandment uh, to do what John was doing. It was something new. What was he doing? What, what was this whole baptism thing about? Something began to develop called proselyte baptism. Uh, there were many washings covered in the Old Testament, but this was not from the Old Testament. This became a tradition in Judaism. And here's what happened. As Gentiles converted to Judaism, okay, under the Old Testament, in the preceding days of John, as Gentiles came in, they would be ceremonially immersed and washed as they converted to Judaism. Okay? And the mindset was because they were unclean Gentiles, not fit for the people of God, so they had to be ceremonially washed and then accepted into the Jewish people, God's chosen people. Okay? This was the idea with proselyte baptism. And in the mind of Jews in John's day, only Gentiles needed this washing, this cleansing, this baptism. Okay? There's, honestly, it was, it's a huge form of ancient racism. Okay? Only Gentiles needed this cleansing. But John comes on the scene in the wilderness and he begins to announce to the people of Israel to repent and be baptized and confess your sins. Okay, so think about this. He announced this baptism. And his message to Israel was basically this. You are no better than an unclean Gentile. You are no more ready to meet the king than than an unsaved pagan. Repent, be baptized, and make yourself ready for the coming 
of the Lord. The Pharisees rejected this baptism because they didn't think that the children of Abraham needed this cleansing. But many, 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 many people came out to hear Him in the wilderness and they responded to John's call of repentance. And many people, multitudes of people, came out and they confessed their sins and they were baptized and they basically said this to God in that moment. I am no better than an unclean Gentile. Okay? This is a powerful example in verse 5 of a national movement. Okay? John spearheaded a national movement. I want you to see that there's a lot going on in his ministry. It was a powerful, fruitful ministry. And it happened in the middle of nowhere. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather, leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Alright, so if you're reading the first eight verses, this is the one that just like, man, what is this guy doing? You know? It's kind of strange, right? Alright, the first thing that should stand out after that initial shock, the first thing that should stand out is that this is completely opposite of what we would call in modern terms seeker-sensitive. Okay? John's message was not seeker-sensitive. He preached repentance. He had a hard message. Okay? John's methods were not seeker-sensitive. Okay? If you are seeker-sensitive, you do not start a movement in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. His dress and his diet are certainly not seeker-sensitive. Okay? And they certainly didn't draw a crowd. Completely opposite of pagan modern-day church growth strategy. Let that stick out to you. But Mark's purpose in verse 6 is to draw our attention to an Old Testament passage. It's 2 Kings 1.8. You don't have to flip there. I'll read it to you real short. It says this, almost verbatim what he quotes here. 2 Kings 1.8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Mark goes out of his way in this one little statement to draw a parallel between Elijah the prophet of old and John the Baptist. So you see him in this garment. And what Mark is saying is this is a prophet of God. This is a prophet like Elijah of old. He was a powerful prophet. In Luke 3, verse 2, we have this phrase, the Word of God came to John in the wilderness. The Word of God came to this man. Alright, now, we, most of us in this room have a Bible, and this, these are the recorded words of God, the written words of God, and we have access to them almost at any moment throughout the day, okay? That is not what that verse means, okay? What, it's, what Luke 3 means when, when it says the Word of God came to John, it came to him like a prophet of old, like Elijah. That means that he heard this living God speak to him, Okay? And that this living God, just like the prophets of old, took His words and put them in the mouth of a man. And that when you heard John speak, you didn't hear the words of a man, but the words of God. He was a prophet, like Elijah of old. He ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's Luke 1, verse 17. John was a living illustration of just how little a man needs to live for the glory of God. He lived a relatively short life as a wilderness nomad. 
And he cared more to identify with the prophets than what was popular. And yet John's life makes perfect sense in light of eternity. I want you to understand how big of a deal John the Baptist was. And I want to camp on this for a second. Alright, because it's really important that we understand the flow of this text. He was a huge deal. Massive deal. He was a powerful man of God. In Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus Himself says that there is none greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. Hello. In John 5, verse 35, Jesus calls John a burning and a shining light. That's what He is. He's a burning and a shining light. Okay, and Jesus draws this picture that John was a prophet of old and he burned like a torch for the glory of God. He was a powerful man of God. When he appeared on the scene, he was the biggest deal in Israel in over 400 years. He was the biggest thing that happened in Israel in over 400 years. God broke his long prophetic silence by putting his words in the mouth of this man in the middle of nowhere, this holy man. And God used John to spark a national revival in Israel as people flocked to the middle of nowhere to respond to this message from his lips. He was a big deal. John was a big deal. He had a huge ministry. He was a prophet, but don't forget this. He was also a priest. John was also a priest. His, his dad was named Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest that ministered in the temple. This is extremely rare in the Word of God that one person would hold these two offices simultaneously. But John was both prophet and priest. He was a huge deal. John the Baptist was a huge deal. In his initial appearance in Israel, he was more popular and more accepted than Jesus Himself. The Jewish historian Josephus, I don't know if you ever heard of that, First century historian named Josephus. He writes more in the first century about John the Baptist than about Christ Himself. This historian does. And that ought to give you some sort of idea of how powerful John's ministry is on a national scale. He is a huge deal. Huge deal. Think of what John would look like to us in modern day terms. He would have thousands of followers. The number one podcast. He would be well known by world leaders. This man of God would. And he wouldn't do this from a comfortable office of a mega church. He'd be sitting in the middle of a desert somewhere. Okay? This is the modern example. We can't even, almost can't even fathom this. This powerful man of God. It's almost unthinkable. He was a big deal. Extremely rare. Luke 1.15 tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Extremely rare. Huge deal. Now I'll ask you this. Someone this powerful, this huge of a deal, this fruitful, this well-known, what do you think John preached about? Verse 7 and 8 as we close. It says this, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In light of how big a deal John was, he saw himself as nothing in comparison to Jesus. As nothing in comparison to Christ. He had a reflection ministry. He was like a mirror. He was deflecting all praise, all glory, all honor, 
onto this coming one, King Jesus. His job was to humble himself and to make Christ known. He said, as powerful of a prophet as this man was, he says this in verse 7, Jesus is mightier than I am. He's mightier than I am. The one who, to- who Jesus told us, Jesus told us this about John, there's not one greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. And yet John says about himself that he's not even worthy to stoop down and tie the sandals of Jesus Christ. The greatest man born of a woman is not even worthy to tie his shoes. Okay, This would have been the lowest of past for the lowest of slaves. And he's basically saying, I am not even worthy to be Jesus' slave, though I am this powerful prophet of God. I want you to see the contrast there. He saw himself as nothing in comparison to Christ. And then consider this, that Jesus Christ was John the Baptist's cousin. Okay, So it's one thing to brag on your cousin as being a godly man. It's another thing to say about your cousin that you aren't even worthy to bend down and to tie his shoes. Okay, Do you see how exalted that John the Baptist saw Jesus? Do you see that? Do you see how he saw himself as nothing in comparison to Christ, the coming one? He is greater. He is greater. He is mightier. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. In verse 8, Mark leaves us with a final comparison. John baptizes with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the person of Jesus is greater than John, and the work of Jesus is greater than the work of John. John says, I can dunk you in water, but he can transform your life. He can grant you the new birth. John's baptism of water is an external sign that touches the skin. But Jesus' baptism of Spirit is an internal manifestation of the presence of the living God that touches the heart. Here we also have another reference to the deity of Jesus. Okay, And it's packed in in this text. In verse 1, He's the Son of God. And then He's... He's he's the one that fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. He is the Yahweh that was to come. But here, He's the one that baptizes in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is who? He's the third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And Jesus can baptize in the Spirit. And here's the logic behind that. Only God can do that. Only God can give God. Only God can baptize and immerse you in God. A man doesn't have control of God. Only Jesus can baptize us in the Holy Spirit. He has been baptizing in the Holy Spirit for about 2,000 years now. He has immersed millions in the Spirit of God and brought men and women from death to life, including many of us who are in this room right now. All praise to Jesus Christ who alone has the authority to baptize in the Holy Spirit to grant the new birth. Alright, as we close... I want us to take a special note today of John's example. And here's why. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought because we do that. And because we favorably compare ourselves with other people. Because we do that. We all need reminding, as John's example does this, that we are not exceptional. We are not exceptional people. We are not special people. And we are not the point. Okay? 
If anybody could have said that, this man could have said that. We are not exceptional. We are not special. And we are not the point. We are not the point, And we will never be the point. Why? Because we are not the Christ. Okay, He is the point. Let John's example provoke us towards humility and protect us from pride and self-glory. Our role as followers of Jesus is to deflect all praise, all honor, all glory onto this glorious, exalted Christ. This is our job. In the words of John in John 3.30, here's our job. John says this, He must increase. He must increase. But I must decrease. We cast it off of ourselves and onto the Savior. All praise. All adoration. May we point to Jesus in all things. May we exalt Him with our whole lives. And may we have this heart till our dying breath. Behold, the message of Mark is, Behold God's servant. Behold this coming one. Okay? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Never forget this matchless story. This is the Gospel of Jesus. The inapproachable God, Yahweh Himself, came to us as the servant in the person of Jesus and Nazareth. This is the greatest story ever told. Jesus is the point of everything. He's the point of it all. He is not the best man, but the groom. He is not the pointer, but the point. He is not the messenger, but the message. He is not the voice, but the Word Himself. Jesus is the point of, point of everything. He's the point of it all. Behold, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Savor Him. Bow down and worship Him. Exalt Him. Give Him all glory, all honor, and all praise. He is worthy. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is just the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And we've only begun to trace the footsteps of this God-man towards His towards His bloody death on the cross and His victorious resurrection. This is only the beginning. Praise God.